Welcome to the podcast today. This is exciting for me. Uh, John Meacham is here. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, historian. He's a presidential biographer, former editor-in-chief of Newsweek, contributing editor in Time. But today he is here to talk to us about his new podcast. John, you're producing and uh, hosting a new podcast, Fate of Fact. First off, welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Thank you. In your your podcast uh, is described as one where you explore how fear has conquered truth and how politics are being held hostage by misinformation. Not to have you dig too deeply into the obvious, but tell us why you think it's important that people tune in to your podcast right now in this moment. Well, we've never had one of our two major political parties be in such sustained flight from fact, at least since the Civil War. And the conspiratorial thinking, the triumph of fantasy over reality on the American right is fundamentally debilitating to democracy itself. Democracy only works if we agree on a certain set of facts about which we can then argue and disagree. But If people are dwelling in different universes, then the democratic lowercase d covenant falls apart because at that point, there's nothing for me. If you and I disagree about how to spend money or whether to build that road or or pass that program, we can't have that conversation if, for instance, I think you're an illegitimate actor in this. If I think that you've stolen an election, the fundamental bond of trust breaks down. I have focused on the right here because the left is not suffering from this right now. They could, but it hasn't happened. It is, in fact, the American right that has decided that if they don't like the reality they see, they will invent another. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, because I listened to the pilot episode. It is riveting. I highly recommend this. But one of the things that you say, there's always, (laughs) (laughs) you know, in in your pilot episode, you emphasized it here. Facts have a gloomier fate on the right than on the left. And you just pointed out how one of our two major political parties uh, seems to be held enthralled by uh, misinformation. So if facts have a gloomier fate on the right than on the left, how do you get anyone on the right to care? Why is this just not a conversation where you're preaching to the choir and everyone's like, yeah, 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 you're, you're absolutely right, when the group that is being, you know, let's just be kind, victimized by misinformation, isn't paying attention? How do you get them to care? You simply tell the story. Uh, you tell the truth. I think it's okay to preach to a choir on the off chance and the hope that the choir at some point leaves the church and evangelizes in their daily lives. I would love to do an intervention with the American (laughs) right. I don't think that that's a likely thing to happen, but I don't see how you can promulgate a reality-based sense of things without diagnosing the problem. So to, to stick with that metaphor, if you don't diagnose the problem, you can't operate on the condition. And so my sense is, this is my opinion. I am enormously admiring in many ways of Ronald Reagan, which is not a popular thing on the left. But I'm talking about 
a party of Reagan and the Bushes and McCain and Romney. That's what I want the Republicans to be, because at least that was a rational actor. Right now, the right is like the PLO in the 70s, right? There's just there's not a lot of constructive conversation. So insofar, if I were on the right and I were listening to this, I, I, you know, I wouldn't be thrilled, but I would hope I would hope that they would appreciate that I'm coming at this from a historical point of view and not an ideological one. Right. I don't think the left is always right. Uh, correct. But I do think that the party as constituted under Eisenhower, Nixon, Ford, Reagan and the Bushes and Senator McCain and Senator Romney is not only in abeyance, but it, it, it's fundamentally broken. So I'm not saying, hey, become Democrats. I'm saying become Reagan Republicans. I can't believe I'm here uh, about to take issue with John Meacham Please. about matters of history. Go for but it. do you think you're giving too much credit to uh, past historical moments. I mean, you know, look, certainly it is true that we saw the last president and uh, a lot of his supporters and enablers embrace uh, what they described, not their words, not mine, alternative facts. We saw that, but the misinformation did not begin in the Trump administration. I mean, my mother is a survivor of Jim Crow, Mississippi. Uh, mm -hmm. There's always been a strain of misinformation premised on bigotry, premised on what you describe in your podcast as a victimhood that is born of the fact that, you know, there's a certain group of folks who no longer get to be the deciders of everything and they don't like it. So that didn't just start with uh, the last president. And are you giving too much credit uh, to us culturally and as a society when you suggest that, you know, it's only now that we've started to see the rise of lies? In no way is this the first time we've seen the rise of lies, whether it's white supremacy or before that, human enslavement, the removal of indigenous peoples, the subjugation of women. Of course, that's inherent in the history and life of the Republic. What is different is that none of the presidents I mentioned a minute ago ever lost an election and said they didn't. They argued within a constitutional framework for what they wanted the country to be. And they played by the rules, which is not happening now. 60% of self-identified Republicans in the United States of America today believe that the 2020 election was stolen. So that is different. And I can't believe I'm sitting here saying that something is entirely new, but mo I spent most of my time proving that Ecclesiastes was right, You know that there's no thing new under the sun. I have thought for a long time that Donald Trump represented a difference of degree, not of kind. I am now less sure of that because mm. I do not believe that Eisenhower or Reagan or Nixon or Ford or President Bush, either one, I do not believe that they were fundamentally about smashing up the Constitution. I do not believe that they were autocratic figures, and Trump is. Let me ask you this. So if we put aside 
the substantive difference between the last president and some of his Republican predecessors or other leaders in um, the Republican Party. I'm sorry. Please, please. I'm sorry. People have argued, for instance, that the way Vice President Cheney approached Iraq was a big lie that in some ways prefigured or laid the groundwork for what we're seeing now. But it never occurred to Dick Cheney when on the afternoon of election day in 2004, when the early exit polls, which were wrong, had John Kerry winning pretty significantly. And when George W. Bush came back to Washington and got off the helicopter, he thought he had lost. It did not occur to them to say it was a stolen election. So we need to be careful that we can normalize the flight from fact in a way that minimizes how profound this crisis is. The run-up to the Iraq war was incredibly troubled, but they were acting out of motives that were within an American tradition. It may not be a good American tradition, but it was an American tradition. This is not that. What you're really focusing in on, I mean, there are two points that I take from uh, what you just said. One, look, American history, American politics has always been suffused with an element of people who don't exactly tell the truth. That's always been the case. Uh, But what we have had is this uniquely American thing about uh, the peaceful transition of power. It started with president number one. When you lose, you say, you know, great election, good job, God bless America, and you go home. What you don't do, and what is new, if I understand your point correctly, is this notion of not accepting the loss and never accepting a loss if you're the one that's losing. That's the thing that you point out is so striking about this moment. So let me ask you, do you think that the attraction that so many Americans have to misinformation is a new thing, or is this just part of a strain that's always been there? I think it is part of a strain that's always been there. And 40% of the country is usually unreachable, <laughs> given whatever the era that's is. That's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. The most united we've ever been was in the American Revolution, and that was probably 80-20. But there were a fifth of folks who wanted to remain loyal to Britain. So, And we've gone down from the 80%. And now it's about 52, 48, 51, 49. So that's a historical fact. The appeal of isolationism, of nativism, of racism, of extremism is perennial. And American history is defined in each given generation by the extent to which those forces are allowed to flow or to the extent to which we manage to make them ebb. And so because we're human beings, And because a republic is the fullest expression of all of us, what does democracy mean? It's the rule of the people. So because of our fallen, frail, infallible natures, because of our lust for power, we are always forever vulnerable to narratives and means to individual or tribal power. And the point of the Constitution, one of the points of the Constitution, was to try to manage and marshal those, frankly, sinful in a theological sense, but those appetites and those ambitions. And it is self-evident that it worked 
that part of the Constitution has worked because what you saw on January 6th was a physical attempt to exert extra constitutional force to disrupt a constitutional process. And if it had just been a mob, that's one thing. But it was a mob with an immense amount of support in the building and in the White House. So that is different. It's contempt for the will of the majority. And that is fundamentally, by definition, the most anti-democratic stance someone can take. Do you think it's an extension of our uh, long simmering, ever being waged culture war? Because you describe it as contempt for the will of the majority. Would you go a step further and say that there is some contempt for the majority itself and for what that majority represents and the extent to which, as you point out in your podcast, that majority has threatened the right of a smaller group of folks to control everything, you know, from our social mores, from uh, law, from culture. Do you think that there's just an actual contempt for the majority that we're wrestling with right now? Yes, I do. And I think it, it has a lot to do with the anxieties of people who look like me. I am a boringly heterosexual white Southern male Episcopalian. Things <laughs> tend to work out for me in this country. And a lot of folks who come from my part of the world and my part of the demographic universe understand at some fundamental level that our day as a majority is ending. Donald Trump was a full-on embodiment of the reaction to that demographic truth. And I don't think it's over. I think it's going to continue. It's one of the reasons we're sitting here talking about it is people understand that the country's changing. And it is in the profit motive, the profit interest of a lot of outlets that promulgate these lies to rile people up, to perpetuate a narrative of grievance, white grievance, that the country is being taken away from them. The fact that it is a country that it was founded for we the people, and the country has, by fits and starts and through tragedy and bloodshed, has expanded the understanding of we the people. I celebrate a lot of the folks who are in flight from fact don't celebrate. In fact, they condemn it. They worry about it. It terrifies them that their country is becoming something else. And to go to a point you made a minute ago about your mother, this is exactly what happened in my native region from Appomattox until, well, today. I mean, it's still going on. But the drama of the 50s and 60s was that you had people in the Klan, you had people in the citizens' councils, you had people who were fighting back against the clearly justifiable expansion of the promise of the Declaration of Independence and trying to make the aspirational real. And that was terrifying. And so there was a, a white reaction to it. Well, we used to say it was more subtle. Now it's not particularly subtle, right? I mean, what's it's going on in the subtle. voting, 
It's not subtle. <laughs> it's not I, subtle I, at I, all. Hey, I, want to, I have two things for you. You can help me on my ev evangelical mission here. One is, it is not gerrymandering. It's gerrymandering. <laughs> Elbridge Gary. I'm trying, I, I tried this with President Obama. I said, if you would change this, and he said, we got enough problems. <laughs> The other is it's not a dog whistle if you can hear it. <laughs> so we got to get that in out of the, out of the locution. So this goes to your point. Of course, it's perennial. And again, it ebbs and it flows. And the good news is Joe Biden is president. The good news is 81 million people said no. The bad news is 74 million people said yeah. So the task of the next four years God willing, is get that 7 million to be 10, to be 15, to be 20, if possible. So thanks to you and your work, I think that you're doing the important job of putting the facts out there and telling the story. All of us, I think, have a hard time reconciling certain parts of history with ourselves and our beliefs. I'm just going back to Franklin and Winston, for instance. I'm a huge history junkie. I'm a World War II junkie. I am fascinated by Winston Churchill. I am super aware of the fact, because I've read biographies, he was not a fan of black folks. I mean, and people can, you know, suggest, well, that was just of the times. Well, black people who were alive during the times, I don't think found it any more tolerable than I do uh, to be routinely disparaged. And sure. so for me, one of the things that I do as I'm processing history and where we've come from is where we are now is that, you know, sometimes there is a thread of something that leads to something better, if I'm not being too vague. Winston Churchill, who, if I remember correctly from a biography, walked out of Porgy and Bess because he said he doesn't like Blackamoors, was in a battle with Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. One of those two men was fighting for a thread of something that would lead to a better place, regardless of where they were. So it's the difference between Thomas Jefferson and Robert E. Lee. One of the two of them was advancing right. a thread of something that allowed for our evolution. What do you say to that? You know more than I do about these things, <laughs> so tell I me. I probably don't, but uh, <laughs> I believe that if you are devoted to a more perfect union, if you are devoted to amendment, adjustment, reform to progress, then you have much to teach us. If you were about, in our history, ending that experiment, if you were General Lee, if you were uh, Stonewall Jackson, if you were a Confederate, you were trying to end an experiment that ultimately gave us the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and gave us a country that honestly most of us are willing to keep fighting for. And so I do think that's a bright line. My, my theory of Confederate monuments is, and I'm not going to tell people what to do in, in their houses or churches or schools, they, they have to fix that. But I don't think a Confederate should be on public land because they were about ending the experiment. And if they'd ended the experiment, very unlikely we would have been the country that could have projected force in the 1940s and into the 50s and 60s against totalitarianism and communist tyranny. And so it's a pretty bright line. Are you for the Constitution with all of its failings or are you against it? And 
it comes down to, and this, this brings us full circle, it comes down to the will to power. Are you willing in a democracy to cede some power to your neighbor? Not just because it's the right thing to do, but if you recognize the rights, opportunities, uh, what Lincoln called an open field and a fair chance for your neighbor, then you're doing it. There's a moral reason to do it, but there's also a very practical reason to do it. Because if, if you cede that power, you're more likely to have it ceded back to you. Mm. You're likely to share it, right? And one of the issues perennially in, in human life and vividly on display in America today is too many people see the extension of opportunity to others as limiting their own opportunity. But I'd argue that history tells you the opposite, that in fact, the, we've never been more prosperous. There are, there's, there's pain and there's difficulty and there's stagnation and, and absolutely. But by and large, we have, we've produced a worthwhile basis from which to continue to, to progress. But if you want to wrap that up, if you want to end that, then it seems to me you are not a rational actor in the American drama. But my theory of biography is that flawed people manage to do some good things. Mm. And if the best people in the American past could get so much wrong, Lord, what are we getting wrong right now? What, what, in 50 years, people are going to look back on this and say, all right, the North Pole just melted, right? Canada and Europe just drowned. What were you doing? Oh, we were fighting about Dr. Seuss. Well, and so it's interesting because, as you said, flawed people uh, can do great things. And you know what? Some of those great things have had unintended consequences. You know, you and I are sitting here today. I live the life I lead and enjoy the freedom I have because of the unintended consequences of the actions of a number of people who, frankly, you know, if we'd been contemporaries, would have had very little to do with me. So I think that we need to appreciate the fact that sometimes things work out in ways that uh, are better than we might know. And this is what I said. Tell us this. All of this, you know, we're in the middle of what is a distinct moment in history. I mean, we've seen political parties come and go. I mean, you and I haven't seen it, but it's happened. We're seeing the rise of in, uh, misinformation. Uh, Fate of Fact, your new podcast, everybody should check it out, really discusses how misinformation has been embraced by the American right. Are you hopeful about America? Are you hopeful for our future? And if you are, why? I am because Biden won. The fact that 81 million people said, no, we don't want this anymore, is a sign of hope. The fact that 74 million people looked around at the COVID response and other things and thought, yeah, we want more of that, gives me enormous pause. But it matters a lot to me, perhaps wrongly, but it does that Trump never got a majority. That tells me that there are just enough of our better angels uh, who, are, who are pushing toward a more just and fair-minded country. So I am hopeful in that sense. I do think that hope requires in this moment 
a strong sense of vigilance, an active citizenship of vigilance. And your very good early question about, okay, everybody's going to listen to this is going to agree with me already. That may be, but if we don't diagnose it, then you can't win any converts. American history is not a fairy tale. There was not a once upon a time, and there's not going to be a happily ever after, because this is a daily struggle to preserve something that is counter to human nature, actually. You know, there have been many more monarchies and autocracies than there have been democracies. And so we have a very precious experiment here. And I don't want it to end on my watch. I don't think you're going to let it. John Meacham, his podcast, Fate of Fact. As you said, sir, you were diagnosing a problem. And from my maybe naively optimistic view, I think that energized truth-telling will defeat loud lying any day of the week. John Meacham, you are a gift and a treasure. And I really, uh, thank you so much for being here. Really, uh, this has been wonderful. It's fun, thank you.